everyone. This is Sellers. And this is Stormy. And And this this is is Unforgotten. Where each episode will highlight unsolved missing, murdered, and suspicious death cases in Alabama in order to raise awareness and hopefully obtain some answers for victims and their families. Please remember that any individual referenced in the podcast should be considered innocent until found guilty in a court of law. And any opinions or views expressed in the podcast are solely those of participants. Listener discretion is advised as some of the content discussed in the podcast may contain violence or graphic descriptions and may not be suitable for all audiences. Be sure to subscribe to our Patreon channel for early access to unforgotten episodes and bonus content. Your subscription will help support the efforts of ACCA in assisting families and raising awareness for Alabama cold cases. Hey guys, and welcome back. This week, we're taking a trip to Etowah County. This hidden gem in the northeast corner of Alabama was founded way back in 1866, and it is full of rich history and stunning scenery. With a population of around 103,000, Etowah is nestled snugly between six counties, Blunt, Calhoun, Cherokee, DeKalb, Marshall, and St. Clair. According to the Encyclopedia of Alabama, Gadsden's the starting point for the world's longest yard sale. Hmm. It's like a Black Friday for yard sales. (laughs) (laughs) Three days of bargains that stretches over a whopping 690 miles. Or about the length of the CVS receipt I got today. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. That's awesome. Yeah, probably. (laughs) It's been long believed that Etowah comes from the Cherokee word for edible tree. Hmm. According to the Encyclopedia of Alabama, Etowah actually comes from the Muskogean language and means town. More notably, it's home to the beautiful Nakalula Falls, a 90-foot waterfall that's named after a Cherokee princess who apparently jumped off the falls to her death because her dad wanted her to marry someone she didn't love. It's beautiful, by the way. It is so pretty. Yeah. I actually, I think I saw pictures of it a while ago when we were first looking into the case because I was trying to figure out where this was. And yeah, beautiful falls. And I did actually know that story before you told it. I remembered that part. Yeah. But nestled in the beautiful scenery and lively community is a family who has been searching for their daughter for the last five years. Jasmine Amaret Nicole Calloway Host, born on August 30th, 1988, was the oldest of Renee and Billy Ray Calloway's two children. The Calloways moved to Stevenson, a small town in Jackson County, to raise their children after residing in Tuscumbia initially. The Calloway family cherished their time together, and Jasmine shared a close bond with her younger brother, Josh. Growing up, Jasmine was a reserved and shy child, but always warm and friendly to those around her. She enjoyed softball and was a member of the band at North Jackson High School. And when we spoke to her family, they talked about all of the band competitions they actually traveled to all the time and that they were always going and watching things like that. Renee finally recalls Jasmine's dream of becoming a model and how she was just always posing for photos. She also had a love for the internet and found herself venturing into chat rooms, like many teenagers and young adults in the late 90s. I remember the America Online dialing in. You could not sneak on the internet. No. Japan back <laughs> on those days. That was the loudest, yep. most annoying sound ever. Yeah. In fact, I think it's still recognizable to a lot of us, but <laughs> but people probably wonder what it is, the ones that are growing up now. Renee recalled Jasmine had met people from all over the U.S. and Canada, and she made a reference to the fact that they had a big old Microsoft computer. Oh, yeah. They were... They were massive. They don't look in, they didn't look anything like what our computers now look like. No, just think what they looked like even before that. <laughs> oh my gosh. I think too it was exciting during this point when Jasmine and a lot of the rest of us were getting access to things that we hadn't always had yeah. easily. Even if it did take forty five minutes to load a web page or whatever. <laughs> Um, to dial in. <laughs> yeah, to dial in. And it was the first time that people could really put themselves out there without kind of concern that people may not like them because you can really be anybody on the internet. Yep. Especially nowadays. Unfortunately, this is one of those stories that kind of reminds us that there's always been 
a darker side to the internet. It's there not has something been. that just came about. It's been there since the beginning. And a lot of people kind of treat it almost, well, I wouldn't say almost like it's new, but it feels like when you talk to people about all the terrible things that can happen on the internet, especially with kids, that it's, you know, relatively a new thing, but it really isn't. And maybe it's just that there's that ease of access for younger kids where, like we talked about, you couldn't just get on the internet when dial up and everything was there because there was no way to really mute that. Mm -hmm. And so maybe there was a little bit more monitoring going on there. Granted, there weren't as many safeguards, I don't think, in place at the time. Right. But maybe it was less access so that's why it seems like it's a more recent thing. Probably. And, you know, they have now it's not just computers, it's devices. So, you know, yeah. you pretty much have anything with you any time of the day because you have your phone or your tablet or whatever with you all the time. And kids, all so many of them have them at a very young age. And it's access through everything. You have mm -hmm. literally Internet access through gaming consoles, computers, tablets, phones, like you were talking about. There's not yep. really a device now that doesn't have some type of internet. Yep. By the mid-2000s, Jasmine was a regular participant in online forums and chat rooms, and she eventually expanded her presence by creating profiles on dating sites and later entering the world of camming, which allowed her to earn money from online activities. As the internet grew in popularity and users, people began to find new and more creative ways of using it. Whether it's ordering products on Amazon or shopping at stores across the globe, the internet has made it possible for users to access nearly anything with just a few clicks. And early on, people recognized that it was a way to make money. And camming, in particular, emerged as a potentially lucrative way to earn money online. Although I'd heard the term before, I only learned about it in greater detail after listening to Undetermined, a podcast by Jessica Knoll and Todd McComas that discusses the unsolved case of Jessica Easterly Durning out of New Orleans. Yeah, that was the first time I'd really, I, I think I'd heard of it before, but not really paid attention, I guess, to it. But the, it, her case really brought it to the forefront. That and then, and, you know, we talked about last night, Cat West, the woman from Alabama who had apparently a huge following on OnlyFans, and she was found dead in her front yard in 2019-ish, I think. Yeah. So I don't really, I guess maybe if you're not looking for that particular thing, it's not something that really stands out because you don't, it doesn't just pop up in your search if you're just, the average user is just Googling things. Right. You know, you, you kind of have to look for those kind of things. And I'm sure by now others have heard about sites like OnlyFans. Where users subscribe to view pictures or watch live streams of people doing anything from cooking and working out to engaging in adult activities. For many, camming has become their primary or sole source of income due to their large followings. While there are various forms of content available on these platforms, adult content does tend to be the primary focus. And let's just be clear that we make no judgment on how anyone chooses to spend their money or time, but it is essential to note that there are instances where participants may not always be willing, and that poses a significant problem. That's correct. You know, sometimes it's, I wouldn't say innocent, but for, for the sake of the conversation, it's some innocent thing, you know, where nobody, it's just two people doing either selling or buying something that there's no contact, there's no, you know, anything that's going to harm another person. But not always does it end up that way. There are instances where other people are involved in making the camming thing happen, whether it's in a good way or not in a good way. And I think more often these days, there are a lot of um, sketchy uh, businesses, I guess you would, if you want to call them that. So. Agreed. And it's hard to tell sometimes what what somebody's agreeing to and what they haven't necessarily agreed to. Yep. Yep. To be clear, we're not sure how active Jasmine was in camming, but it's worth noting since it's possibly how she connected with her future husband, Mark Allen Host. Whether it was through chat rooms or her online profiles, Jasmine struck up a friendship with Laura, a woman from Michigan, and the two began chatting regularly. In 2009, Jasmine received a message from Laura's brother, Mark, claiming that Laura had fallen gravely ill and had been hospitalized. And though the two had never met in person, Jasmine was concerned for her friend and made the decision to travel to Michigan to be by Laura's side. However, by the time she arrived, it was too late. Laura had already passed away. Hmm. That, that seems 
seems like it would be disturbing for Jasmine. She would have been so worried. I know. And this is a question that I keep asking myself. And when we talked to Jasmine's parents, they were a little bit unsure about this trip to Michigan to meet somebody she didn't know. But they said she was an adult. She could make her own decisions. um, And they wanted her to have friends. And if this was one of her friends, they wanted to support her decision to go, even though they weren't sure about this. And that's one thing that you'll see and hear about from them is that no matter what was going on, they wanted to respect her independence and they wanted to trust her judgment. And she always knew that they were there, but they didn't really want to, I guess, invade her privacy yeah. or, you know, her right to make these decisions. Right. During her trip, Jasmine and Mark unexpectedly hit it off, despite the tragic circumstances that brought them together. And Jasmine made the decision to leave her old life in Alabama behind and start a new life with Mark and his three children. Wow, that's a big decision. And she's pretty young. Yeah, she's um, 20 or 21 at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a big, big decision. And I don't know how I'd feel if it were one of my kids. I would probably have a hard time with it. Personally, knowing now, because we have the knowledge of what happened later, right? It's easy to look at this and see what a bad decision it ended up being. Correct. Yeah. And I don't know if maybe that kind of causes some bias in the way that you would consider it, but you kind of have to have an open mind when you're thinking about it. And I don't know. I just think that's a that's a big leap. Yeah. Great. You know, Renee and Billy were also surprised and somewhat unsure about this sudden decision, but they respected her independence as an adult. However, there were moments that left them concerned. Renee vividly remembers hearing Jasmine's voice on the phone, sounding different, perhaps even drugged, and they began to wonder if their daughter was truly happy and being taken care of. And I think any parent would have that concern, regardless of how she sounded on the phone. You have to wonder when you're not there with your child who has been literally living with you their entire life and suddenly they're states away and you don't really know what is actually going on. Yeah, that's what I was just going to say. You know, she's been at home up until she went to Michigan for life. She grew up there. They were they knew where she was most of the time, I assume. They were able to talk to her and, you know, all of that. Now she's states away. And how does she know what's going on there? Or how do they know what's going on there? That's got to be nerve-wracking. Mm-hmm. To put their minds at ease, Renee, Billy, and Josh took a trip to Michigan to see for themselves how Jasmine was doing and to meet the man who had supposedly captured their daughter's heart. When they met Mark, he seemed charming, charismatic, and to genuinely care about Jasmine, albeit he was quite a few years older, 20 years to be exact. But it wasn't just Mark who won the Callaways over. His three children seemed fond of Jasmine and were excited to spend time with her family, particularly her brother Josh. In preparation for this episode, we had the opportunity to speak to Brianna, Mark's daughter from a previous marriage. Brianna was eight years old when she met Jasmine for the first time, and she said that Jasmine was a truly wonderful person who loved her and her siblings. She described Jasmine as kind and compassionate. She was very quiet, but once she got to know where she opened up, she wasn't so quiet anymore. She was very kind, she was very nice, she was very funny, very loving. But she didn't even love herself at the time. She would love everyone around her and that would make her happy. Always prioritizing the children's well-being over her own. And that's kind of a big deal for somebody who is in their very early 20s, who for the first time is moving away from their parents. And I think it says a lot about the environment that she was brought up in. Yeah, it does. I'm sure that this reflects on Renee and Billy Ray quite a lot and how she how well she did with the kids. We may never know whether Jasmine's move to Michigan was spurred by the thrill of a new love or something more sinister, but we do know that not everything was exactly as it seemed. Years later, the Callaways learned the friendship between Jasmine and Laura had been nothing but an elaborate ruse. While Mark did have sisters, none of them were named Laura. And it had actually been Mark behind the screen chatting with Jasmine the entire time. Yeah, and I I think we didn't really find out exactly how that all came about, but I can't even imagine what she must have thought at first when she found that out. You know, I asked Renee and Billy how Jasmine reacted finding out that there wasn't actually a Laura, and they said they weren't even sure that 
Jasmine ever even knew there wasn't a Laura. You know, Jasmine um, was going to Michigan because her understanding was Laura was in the hospital. And then she gets there and Mark says, oh, Laura's died. So she, she may have just thought that Laura died. Wow. I mean, I wonder if she ever questioned. You almost think she would have to have found out because wouldn't they have had like a funeral and, you know, it would be kind of um, odd not to have any of that. I'm sure he had an excuse if that. Well, it, you, you know, know, maybe they cremated her in his story. Yeah, could be. But you would think that she would have asked like, oh, mm-hmm. are, are you guys sad about your Aunt Laura? You know, mm-hmm. something. Um, especially considering how close her family was to each other. Yeah. So you almost kind of think that she would have had to have known. And if she did, it wasn't something that was extremely detrimental to their relationship. Obviously, she had decided she could move past it. Yeah. Because she stayed. She stayed. Yeah. And Mm. now there are things we'll talk about later that will make you wonder, did she willingly stay? Right. Um, and I do, I think she probably did, but I think it's because she also had a really soft spot for the children. Um, yeah, she really did. But just kind of based on what it sounds like, it, I mean, it sounds like she was okay. Yeah. However, it was explained, whatever came out, they were able to move past it, is what it seems like. Yeah. Mm. When we found out about Laura, we decided to kind of dig into Mark's past. So after conducting a thorough investigation into his background, we uncovered several criminal charges, both prior to and after Jasmine's arrival. Notably, in 1999, Mark was charged with felony assault, which was later reduced to impersonating a public officer. I'm not really sure how he equates impersonating a public officer. Yeah, I almost wonder if for some reason the records were, I don't know. It seems funny that that they would, because wasn't there actually... Wasn't there more than just the felony assault in that incident? It seemed like there was two charges, but maybe I'm wrong. There were multiple assault charges. Mm-hmm. I can't remember in the 1999 one whether there was just the one charge or the more than one charge. But that just seemed like kind of an odd categorization to go from assault to just impersonating a police officer. Right. I don't know how you make that jump, but don't have the records. Michigan yeah. doesn't have their images online so you can only see kind of docket entry type things case action summaries and it doesn't tell you a whole lot of information about it so i'm going to call the clerk next week and see how we can get copies of this stuff that'll be interesting to see what the details are additionally in 2010 mark faced charges of felony assault possession of dangerous drugs and weapons wow that seems like kind of a big jump all of a sudden i mean there's an assault. Yeah, that wasn't good, but that seems like an awful... Uh, yeah, and this is right after Jasmine gets there. So you kind of have to wonder, what was her impression of that? Oh, we just... I got here in 09, and then here we are in 2010. And and who was the f- assault against, I guess, is the other question. Yeah, I'm not really sure about that. The charges were ultimately either dropped or reduced, and he just received two counts of firearm possession by a felon. How does he keep getting lucky with these reduced charges? I know. I thought the same thing. I was like, dang, he had a good lawyer. Yeah. Um, because they just dropped those drug charges. Mm. There were two drug charges. One, I think, was related to marijuana possession, maybe. But I'm not sure what the other one was. Yeah. We also discovered that Mark had been married at least twice before Jasmine's arrival. And as we move forward in the episode, keep in mind that Jasmine's family did not have any of this information at the time this was going on. And they're not sure Jasmine knew either. But you would think that at least for the charges that occur after she's there, she definitely had to have some knowledge of those charges. Yeah, you would think so. Or at least that something was going on legally with him, even if she didn't know the exact details of it. Yeah, and there's... Another event that occurs here shortly um, where Jasmine tells her family that she's considered um, a sus, not a suspect, but kind of like an accomplice or an ex- it's not, I don't necessarily think it was accessory, but I think she actually used the word accomplice. And she said she wasn't allowed to leave the state. Mark hmm. was in jail. Um, and we'll get into that in a little bit, but I'm not 100% sure about that because we couldn't find any kind of criminal charges against Jasmine in Michigan. So maybe it's just something that they were told. 
As expected, Jasmine and Mark's relationship grew stronger. And on August 30th, 2011, Renee, Billy, Josh, and Renee's mother watched as the two exchanged vows in a courthouse ceremony in Michigan. It appeared that the host's marriage was a happy one, as evidenced by their growing family. With the arrival of their first daughter, Mercedes, in 2012, their family of five became a family of six. However, they'd moved a few times since Jasmine's arrival and were currently residing in a mobile home park in the Houghton Lake area. Based on our discussions with family members, it seems that Rachel Lynn Sears entered the host's family's life during this time period. Rachel, who also resided in the same mobile home park, began spending a significant amount of time with the host family and actually moved in with them shortly after the birth of their first daughter. That's a lot of people under one roof. And that's a lot to manage, you know, for basically newlyweds, you know, to have... And a new baby. uh, Yeah, a new baby, a new roommate, so to say, Uh, especially when, well, maybe they were friends if... I can't remember. Didn't we find out that she was, you know, like right across the street? I think so. I I mean, I think she was somebody that was around a bit, at least from the time they moved into the mobile home park. Yeah. And at first it seemed innocent enough, but things took a shocking turn when Jasmine and Rachel both discovered they were pregnant with Mark's children. Yeah. I wonder how that went. And when we say both, they were both pregnant at the same time and Just two months after Jasmine gave birth to their second daughter, Aubriella, which was in September, Rachel gave birth to her daughter in November. So very close in time. So you can imagine this complicated family dynamic. For sure. And I can't help but wonder if, you know, this is where things really started taking a turn. That's kind of what I think, too, is Rachel comes in and the dynamic shift and things start kind of trending downward. And Brianna told us that Rachel didn't necessarily like Jasmine very much. I can't imagine if she had a child with him. She must have had some extraordinary feelings for him. And so, you know, two women with the same man. Yeah. But I think that's just a lot about him. If you'll let somebody come, relationships aside, but you let somebody come in who treats your wife bad, that's not a good, healthy relationship, marriage. No. No. If you even putting aside the other things, but Mark was apparently very good at the facade he'd built. Right. You know, he had carefully crafted that. And I think he stayed in character with that because Renee and Billy said that anytime they talked to Jasmine, she seemed happy. Things seemed fine. And at first they had no idea that Mark would turn out to be who he turned out to be. Yeah. Did they, did they know at that time that Rachel was having a, Another baby or a, a baby? I assume so, but I don't know. I mean, it would be kind of hard to learn that later. Yeah, but maybe, maybe they didn't know. I don't know. I honestly don't know. That's something that um, we could probably ask them. But they know now, and you would assume they would have known she was pregnant since she was living with them. And they frequently traveled. It sounds like to Michigan. They made several trips to see them. Um, yeah, I just don't know if it was ever told to them up front. Oh, Mark and Rachel are also having a baby. True. Or, you know, if they think Rachel's just a roommate, then, you know, maybe they didn't say whose it was. That's also true. Rachel also had another child, but she'd never had custody of that child and had basically signed over custody to her brother, according to Brianna. Another piece of the puzzle, huh? Yeah. As Renee and Billy watched Jasmine and Mark's life together evolve with the addition of Rachel... They couldn't help but feel uneasy. The constant moving, the mysterious fights with neighbors, and the ever-changing case of characters coming in and out of their home made them question the stability of Jasmine's situation. Mark used to say that he really liked taking in strays. That's how it was put to the Callaways. Wow. And they said, you know, there were people constantly kind of in and out, and sometimes they were told those people were Rachel's relatives. That's interesting. It kind of makes you, you know, just by using that kind of term how he sees the people that are in his life. And strays. Mm -hmm. I can see where that could be a jokingly endearing term under certain situations. But again, knowing what we know now, I think it says a lot. Yeah, I do too. Their suspicions only grew when they learned about Mark's arrest for possession of a firearm by a felon. The details of what occurred 
were and still are murky. They were told Jasmine was being considered a suspect and wasn't allowed to leave the state during this time frame, making them really question what exactly was going on behind closed doors. Despite their concerns, the Callaways remained loyal and supportive. They even went so far as to go to Michigan to visit Mark while he was in jail. Really? Mm-hmm. That's kind of crazy. They must they have been really, pretty forgiving. They really try very hard to be supportive of the decisions people make as adults. And, and after you can talking hear to it, them, I was just going to say, after talking with them, they are such lovely people. I can totally see this. Yes, that is exactly what I was going to say. They are just very, they seem very accepting. Or, you know, everybody has their quirks, but it seems like, and I think you see that, you know, when we were talking about Jasmine and the way that she treated the kids, but it sounds like they just really love their children and they just really wanted to support them in the best way they possibly could. And they didn't want to stand in their way from something that would make them happy. Even if they didn't agree with it, they understood their kids were adults at this point and that there really wasn't a whole lot they could do to stop them. And I think it's probably easier to be supportive and still have your children in your life than to try to stop them from doing things that you don't necessarily agree with, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It might push them away. Yeah. Based on the records we reviewed, it appears that the arrest that they were talking about occurred in early 2013 when Mark was charged with felony larceny and felony obstructing police. Although, again, it appears he pled down to a misdemeanor charge of receiving and concealing and false report of misdemeanor. Lucky man. I know there's something else going on behind the scenes. uh, It makes you kind of wonder. And Hmm. he was constantly moving. That was one thing they said they noticed was that they always seemed to be moving. They got to see everywhere they lived, except for the last one. They said they didn't. They moved before they got a chance to make a trip up there. So that's. If you think yeah. about it, this isn't a very long time frame. Mm-mm, that isn't very long. So we noticed that Mark had a habit of moving every so often. We know that he had moved about three times since we had met him. It's like he was always watching over his shoulder, you know, looking out the window, jumping up with his gun and stuff like that, looking outside like he was running from something. They moved four times. Then they found this house, got this place in Gadsden. It took them a while, but they moved. For some reason, they were let seem like they were leaving in a hurry from up there. I don't know. We don't. We never did find out why they were leaving in such a hurry. So that kind of was making them scratch their head too. I think. You know, why would they need to be moving? And maybe this is part of it because things continued to escalate in the host household in Michigan before coming to a head in late 2013, early 2014, when a confrontation with neighbors resulted in an all-out brawl. That included one of Mark's sons being knocked unconscious with a baseball bat. My. So maybe they were having issues with their neighbors. Yeah. Huh. Understanding their situation wasn't getting any better, and perhaps out of fear of additional criminal charges, the decision was made to move to Alabama immediately, which resulted in the kids all being removed from school. The family moved into a fixer-upper on Nakalula Drive in Gadsden, Alabama, Despite the Callaways' excitement at having their daughter and granddaughters closer to them, something didn't feel quite right. The concerns over the rushed move to Alabama were dampened when Jasmine and Mark announced they were having their third child, Elizabeth, which they welcomed to the world in April of 2015. That's a lot of girls. Yeah. (laughs) They had three girls. He had Brianna, and then Rachel also had a girl. Yeah, that's that's kind of scary, actually, to have that many girls in one household. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'll admit woman. that being a woman myself. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I don't know what my husband would do if there were like five, six of us. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's kind of interesting, you know, the move to Alabama. Um, I think obviously he must, assuming obviously he must have been running to me. That's the impression that I get that he moved to avoid charges. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was kind of like, oh, if the police are paying attention to us, we need to move places. Yeah. And kind of get it almost makes you kind out of the wonder, hot seat. Yeah. It almost makes you kind of wonder if, to a degree, you know, he was kind of doing that with the house hopping he was doing in Michigan, you know, avoiding. Yeah. You know, sometimes if they just don't even have your address, it's hard to locate a person. Well, so. that's kind of what I was thinking, because if you actually look at that criminal background, it looks like all the charges come in different counties. Hmm. 
So that's kind of what I was thinking was that he is just deliberately avoiding, you know, what's going on. And it kind of makes you wonder, were there other things going on behind the scenes? And I think there probably were, but there are things that we'll talk about later, but we can't necessarily get into now. Unfortunately, the situation in the host household continued to deteriorate. Between Rachel's introduction into the host household and the sudden move to Alabama, Mark's attitude and behavior took a turn for the worse as he became physically and verbally abusive towards the children and Jasmine. To make matters worse, Mark began using drugs and alcohol, adding fuel to the fire of his already volatile behavior. Brianna recalled that at one point, they even had a trial system in the house. If anyone had complaints, they had to write the complaints down on a piece of paper and essentially present their arguments to Mark for a decision, which they could appeal by also submitting a request for reconsideration in writing. So he essentially made himself the judge and jury in their house. This was crazy. Although from talking to her, it seems that the drug use really kind of tipped that scale where he, the, the kind of behavior that he had wasn't... Um, it was new. Yeah, he had not. When we talked to Brianna, she said he had not always been that way. Yeah, he was at this time when I was a little girl. Um, he was the perfect dad. He wasn't like this. He wasn't like this at all. I don't know what happened. He would take us camping. He would socialize with us. He would do fun activities. He would give us hugs. He would kiss us. You know, anything a normal dad would do. She said that this was kind of unexpected shift in his behavior. Right. Yeah. That's sad. Well, and the, you know, with the drugs and things, it, it can tend to um, change the behavior more than even just shift in how they, a uh, person, you know, their normal behavior. Um, you know, I think Brianna was talking about how the kind of drugs he was doing actually, you know, increased that. Yeah, altered his behavior or altered, mental state. Yeah. Mm hmm. The events within the host household began to have an impact beyond their walls. Jasmine began to withdraw from her family, and their communication dwindled. In April of 2015, Jasmine gave birth to their third daughter, Elizabeth. But by June of 2015, the Calloways were receiving a phone call from Jasmine asking for their help. They drove to Nakalula State Park, where they found Jasmine looking disheveled, thin, and with apparent injuries that Jasmine claimed were caused by Rachel or Mark. The Calloways insisted on going to Jasmine and Mark's Gadsden home to get the children, but Jasmine begged them not to and insisted that the children were okay with Mark. And when we went and picked her up, she she had uh, smack marks on her face and her arms were like it had been bruised up real bad. Yeah. And she was real slender and everything had lost weight. And, and I said, you want us to go to the house and get the kids? And she said, no, Mama, just don't go get the kids. And she says, and my purse and everything is there. So I said, well, baby, said, we'll take you there to get your purse and get the kids. No, Mama, please don't go. Don't, please don't go. So she was scared. We don't know how she ended up the Nakalula State Park, whether they dropped her off and she just needed a ride, if she had ran away, were there threats made? And maybe that's kind of what, if she was afraid that her going back would cause harm to the children, then I absolutely believe that she probably wouldn't have went and got them or tried to yeah. get them. Right. Or if she went back, that something worse would happen to her. Jasmine stayed at her parents' home for a short period, but on August 8, 2015, she told them she needed a ride to the bus station. She claimed she was going to visit a friend in Texas, and although it was strange for her to leave her children behind, Renee and Billy tried their best to trust her judgment. 2015, she left here supposedly going to Texas to meet a friend. I should have thought something was wrong because I wouldn't be normal for her to leave with three children there. So I took her to the bus station, loaded up a lot of clothes and whatnot she had, weighed them and put her on the bus, and I waved at her when she pulled out of the parking lot. I think probably at this point they were beginning to question her judgment. But again, if you have an idea that your child's in a precarious situation, and you're concerned that they're not going to talk to you because they've already talked about that she's become more withdrawn and less communicative. And right. when you're worried about what's going on, you don't want to rock the boat to the point where they won't call you if they need anything. True. And if she was saying that she was going to visit a friend, 
maybe they thought that would be okay. Yeah. They wanted her to be happy. And maybe too, it was part of, they knew this wasn't a great situation and maybe her getting to Texas would be great for her to kind of Mm -hmm. get her in a place where she could leave. We've talked about before that in abusive relationships, sometimes people just, they don't want to leave. They won't leave until they actually want to leave. Right. And so maybe they were hoping that that would encourage her because they said they had tried to talk her into coming back. Um, They really weren't big fans of things that were going on. But again, they didn't really even know the whole story either at that time. Exactly. As Jasmine boarded the bus and waved goodbye to her father, he had no idea it would be the last time he would see his daughter or really even hear from her for almost two years. Yeah, it doesn't sound like uh, she went to Texas. She didn't. She got on the bus and then apparently at the very next bus stop, got on a return bus back to Gadsden. And what it seems like is it was an attempt to isolate her from her family. Jasmine had been living with her parents since that event that had occurred in the June time frame. And apparently Mark was telling Jasmine that her parents were doing some kind of voodoo on her, some spills, and had her convinced that her parents really didn't have her best interest in mind. Mark was just trying to keep her away from us. And Mark even went as far as to tell Jasmine that we were bad people and we was, what, voodooing her and trying to voodoo her and stuff like that. It's just amazing. This People, men like this, I shouldn't say men like this, anybody like this that can be so manipulative um, that they can convince that someone's parents are doing those kinds of things. Especially if they know, you know, you know your own parents pretty well. He must have been some kind of uh, smooth talker somehow with all of that. Yeah, and I think, too, it goes back to the kids. They're, all the kids are there. Brianna said she was a wonderful mother, mm-hmm. and she always put the kids first. And while I do think that maybe some of it was the relationship with Mark, I think probably some of it, too, was that she wasn't going going to leave the kids there for too terribly long without her. Maybe it seemed like she, on the outside, that she believed what he was telling her, but I, maybe she didn't and just was protecting the kids. And I'm I'm with you there that she did buy into a lot of what he oh. was telling her. And that, and that happens with abusive relationships. It's not that they don't love the other person. It's just the situation. It's not that they don't love their parents or whoever, but maybe they love the other person a little bit more and they don't want to believe that they're going to tell them lies. Mm -hmm. They want to believe that they want them back. They want to believe they want to work things out. And when you want to believe that, and that's what you want to happen, it's easy to kind of be talked into that, coming back and continuing to work on things, even when maybe in hindsight or in the back of your mind, you know, that's really not the best idea. Right. Yeah. As the days turned into weeks and the weeks into months, the family heard nothing from Jasmine. Even Josh, who had always been able to get a response from his sister, found that his messages went unanswered. When he did manage to get a response, he noted a change in the way her texts were written, as though they were coming from a completely different person. Or, if he got a response at all, most of the time they weren't written, they were emojis, thumbs up, or, you know, some kind of acknowledgement that wasn't typically her response. Yeah, that seems almost predictable at this point now. And it says a lot about the relationship she had with her brother, too, if he was able to notice changes in just their dialogue. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people don't pay a lot of attention to that, but like there were things that maybe weren't spelled right that she would normally spell like okay, like letter O, letter K. And then maybe somebody actually spelled it O-K-A-Y. He picked up on those little shifts. Or just saying something that she doesn't ever say. Right. So even these things are starting to stand out to the family that there's something really going on. The Callaways were growing increasingly concerned about their daughter's whereabouts as their attempts to contact her were met with silence. They turned to Mark for answers, hoping he could provide some insight into Jasmine's sudden disappearance. However, Mark's responses were frustratingly vague, offering little more than assurances that Jasmine was with a friend in Texas. And although it was somewhat inconsistent, Billy said that Renee's brother was able to speak to Jasmine. When Renee's brother would call Mark to ask about her, Mark would act as though he was calling her at the friend's house in Texas and then put the group on a conference call. But really, he was just handing her the phone in the next room. 
Jeez. But nobody knew because they all still thought she was in Texas. And that's what Mark was telling people. Tony, uh, my brother-in-law from California, he talked to her on the phone. We never did. Like he said, well, she's not here, but I'll try to see if I can contact her for you and let you talk to her. And Tony got to talk to her here, boy. He would ask her, was she okay? And of course, she would say she was. But of course, she had no other choice but to say she was because... So he had successfully isolated her from her family. They don't have communication with her anymore. They're not seeing her because, and they're not coming up there because they think she's not there. Um, He also started withdrawing the children from them and limiting their contact with the children. So when the Callaways began to ask more and more questions, Mark began rejecting their calls and ultimately blocked their phone numbers. Can you imagine how pissed they were? Yeah, I can't even. (laughs) That's probably not even an appropriate word to really encompass the anger they felt and frustration. I am quite sure. I mean, I know how I'd feel. I wouldn't like it if anybody did, but if it was my son-in-law and for my daughter Mm -hmm. and my grandkids. Yeah. Oh, no. Nobody messes with your kid or your grandkids. (laughs) Yeah. So as time passed and they continued to be met with radio silence, the Callaways began to fear the worst. In a desperate bid to locate their missing daughter, they filed a missing person report, hoping that law enforcement could shed some light on the situation. Multiple visits were made to the host Gadsden home by law enforcement, and they were told that either Jasmine was fine and wanted to be there, or they were told Jasmine wasn't there at all at the moment, which was a lie. Right. When the Callaways discovered that Jasmine had never actually traveled to Texas and had actually immediately returned to Gadsden, they began making phone calls to the Gadsden PD requesting welfare checks. And the DHR up there said that they had gone there and checked on them and said the children were fine in it, but they didn't see any sign of Jasmine being there. And I don't remember how many times we had that dump, and they always told us the same thing. Everything was fine as far as they could see, and they didn't see any sign of Jasmine. I totally would do that, too. <laughs> yes, and I think they called regularly. And, mm-hmm. you know, when I talked to them the first time, one of the comments that they made was that, People thought they weren't doing anything to look for their daughter because there wasn't anything in the media. The first mention, really, I think, of any story about Jasmine is in 2021 when the Crime Stoppers reward was announced. And people see, oh, she's been missing since 2017, but you're just now talking about it. Why was there such a delay? But the problem Mm -hmm. wasn't that there was such a delay. They really were trying to find their daughter. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. And that really bothered them that people thought they weren't looking because they were. According to Brianna, the situation in the host household had become unbearable by June of 2017, and she decided to run away. Brianna actually begged Jasmine to go with her. Jasmine would just not leave because I tried to get her to leave and turn everything into the authorities, but she wouldn't. So for me to think that she would, like, it would be fathomably possible for her to just up and leave when Mark and Rachel went down to Kentucky, it's not believable. But despite her pleas, Jasmine refused to leave the children alone. So one morning at the end of June, Brianna snuck out of their home and went to another home at the bottom of Nakalula Mountain and asked to borrow their phone to call law enforcement. She even told them that she'd ran away from her dad. Fortunately, the residents had a family member who was in law enforcement and they were able to get in contact with him. Brianna was placed in a foster home for about two weeks before being pulled out of the foster care system. With nowhere else to go, she returned to Mark's home, where she says she was locked in a room for the weekend. And I guess for punishment in that like, to- uh, talking what, to they her. trying to keep her from leaving again or something? Well, I think it was, pun- they locked her in the room. I don't think she was given food. Um, that was something that she talked about. That was one of the big changes when they moved to Alabama. They were not given food. They were not treated very well. She said essentially yeah. they were starved. Um They would get like each get a pizza a week and they had to make that last. Oh, my heaven. That's heavy stuff. Yeah. Neglect at the very least. On the following Monday, DHR removed Brianna from the home and placed her in a group home in Russellville for a year and a half before her mother was able to obtain custody. That's a long time. She said her mom had to get a lawyer to be able to get her. Yeah. That must have been hard because once the kid enters the system and there's another parent involved, it could be rough. And, you know, it bothers me that, which 
I guess going back, Brianna said that their dad wasn't always like this. But when we're reading through and we're hearing about all of this, how did he even get these children? Yeah. I mean, obviously he didn't seem as he was at that point. Um, you know, the drug use or at least the extreme drug use doesn't appear to have been a, like this at that time. And you would think, though, when their mother files for divorce, the court system has the ability to look people up. They know. So nobody thought, oh, we probably shouldn't give him custody. Then maybe it's one of those things. You see this happen. It just kind of falls through the cracks. And, you know, we don't know what happened in the background, whether he seemed to Brianna or any of the other kids earlier on to be, you know, okay, to be a good father or, you know, any of that. We don't really know what their relationship was like, Veronica and his. Right. We don't know if maybe there was some threats behind the scene that nobody was aware of. You know, that's true. I We don't know why their their relationship and the kids being with him ever occurred in the first place. So, And it really, all three of his children from the prior marriage had moved to Alabama with them. By the time mm-hmm. Brianna had ran away, his oldest son had already left and went back to Michigan in an attempt to get away from him. Yeah. The only child that stayed once Brianna was removed was the middle son. So although Brianna can't be sure what happened after she was removed from the home around August, she knows for certain that Jasmine was still living in the home at the time all of this was occurring. So at least through the August time frame of 2017, Jasmine was still in the home. She said that Jasmine had not been treated very well since the move to Alabama. To be fair, I don't think any of them had been treated very well except for maybe Rachel. They suffered significant abuse at the hands of her father and Rachel, especially Jasmine, and the children were even encouraged to abuse her. Yeah, that blows my mind. That blows my mind. And Brianna said she remembered them encouraging her to do this and thinking, no, this is a mother figure to me. This is somebody I love. This isn't right. I'm not going to do it. And that just, there's not a lot you can say about that, but how terrible I mean, that kind of tells you that's that's manipulation of the children there. I mean, that's not just teaching them something, but that's that's a that's a behavior change. Determined to get answers and unwilling to accept that Jasmine was willingly cutting ties with her family, Renee and Billy drove to the Gadsden home accompanied by law enforcement in September of 2017, and they refused to leave the house until they were able to physically see that their daughter was alive and unharmed. And though they were not allowed to speak with Jasmine, seeing her alive, even if escorted by Rachel, provided them with at least a small sense of relief. From August the 8th, 2015 to September the 1st, 2017, we had no physical contact or anything with her. And Bill and I laid eyes on her in the driveway in Gaston at 801 Nakamoo Drive that day, September 1st, 2017. uh, I demanded that the cops bring her outside because I knew she was there. Rachel came out with Jasmine on her left arm, standing there with Jasmine with big oversized clothes on, wrapped up. Mark standing at the fence, ranting and raving. There was two police cops there, insisted that Bill and I leave. They would not let us talk to my daughter. They would not let us take no photos of my, our daughter or nothing else. Demanded we leave, but they were threatening to throw us in jail. I'm, that just bothers me so much that... Yeah, they couldn't speak to her. They couldn't speak to her, you know... She was escorted. And you have to think about, too, that if somebody's in a situation that they don't necessarily want to be in, even if they didn't want to be in it to begin with, a lot of times if they feel threatened, unsafe, whatever, they're not going to tell you that in front of the people. Oh, absolutely not. And I think that's what was happening when officers were showing up to ask them, is everything okay? Is she here? They're asking her these questions in front of Mark or Rachel. Mm-hmm. And she's really not going to feel like she's in a place to say, no, I really don't want to be here. I mean, you should be able to say that. But if you're in a really bad situation, you don't feel like you can. No. I mean, there's a chance that, as we know in this, these situations, that she might not anyway, but certainly not if they're with her. No, And that's one thing that Brianna said, that Jasmine just wouldn't leave. She didn't want to leave the kids. 
she was a wonderful mom. No matter how much pain she was in, how much bullshit she was going through, and how much she was suffering, she loved every single one of us children. Nothing that she could say to her would get Jasmine to actually leave. And it doesn't seem like anything her parents or family could say would get her to leave. And I think probably at this point in 2017, she realizes this isn't a good situation, but she's feeling stuck. And she knows she can't leave without leaving the kids behind because she doesn't think he's going to let them go with her. Mm -hmm. And I can't help but wonder if all of this, you know, she she has her baby. A couple months later, she leaves home she, and goes and stays with her parents. I'm sure that they weren't happy about that or he wasn't happy about that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she had to lie in order to get away from her parents' house and be kind of behave like or act like you know, she wasn't going home when she was. And there's so much that goes on that if you hadn't talked to the Callaway family or Brianna or Sergeant Phillips to know that this did really happen, mm -hmm. you would almost think that this is unbelievable. It, it's almost like a movie, to be honest. Yeah. It's one of those things where it's like, this only happens on TV, except it doesn't. Yeah. Sadly, September of 2017 would be the last time the Calloways would ever lay eyes on their daughter. It appears as though Mark was constantly evading the consequences of his actions, moving from one town to the next to avoid the impact of his actions. And it seems like he did the exact same thing in 2018 when he left Rachel and the children behind in Alabama to find a home in Kentucky. So at some point after September of 2017, which is the last time the Callaway saw their daughter, he leaves. The somewhat shocking part about that is that Rachel and the children remained in Alabama for almost a year before finally joining Mark in Dawson Springs, Kentucky. That's just, yeah, that's really crazy. Uh, yeah. The situation surrounding Jasmine's disappearance is shrouded in mystery and conflicting accounts. Rachel claims that on the morning of their planned move to Kentucky, she woke up to find that Jasmine had just disappeared without a trace. However, according to what the Calloways have been told, two women, presumably Jasmine and Rachel, were heard arguing, and then Jasmine suddenly vanished. The discrepancies between these accounts only adds to the already disturbing circumstances surrounding Jasmine's disappearance and leaves her family to wonder what really happened to their daughter and why Rachel's story doesn't really seem to add up. Right, exactly. And knowing how much Rachel didn't like her to begin with and he wasn't there any longer and that whole situation must have been pretty volatile. After learning of Mark and Rachel's move to Kentucky, the Calloways again filed a missing person report on Jasmine. Both Jasmine's parents and her brother and his wife continued calling authorities in Kentucky, requesting welfare checks on Jasmine and the children. However, there's been no confirmed sighting of Jasmine since September of 2017. Searches of the homes in Gadsden and Dawson Springs, along with areas of Nakalula Mountain, have turned up no additional information. It does seem like at least some of Mark and Rachel's actions have caught up with them, though. In 2021, the couple was arrested in Dawson Springs, Kentucky, as fugitives from Alabama, and brought back to Alabama to face charges. Well, char it's about time that some of that came around to get them, huh? Uh, and I think it is going around pretty hard. The charges against them are not just serious, but also disturbing, as they've both been indicted on counts of first-degree rape and sexual torture. Given the pending trial, we aren't going into the specifics, but it's clear that they both face a long road. I'm, yeah, when we found out about this, we were a little... Taken aback, I guess. Yeah, it's just... To know really what the, the the depth of the situation really was in that household. I couldn't even... It's terrible. And it just kind of speaks volume about what was going on behind the scenes that nobody really knew about. Yeah. It's important to note that these charges are not related to Jasmine's disappearance. But they do suggest a pattern of abusive behavior that raises troubling questions about the couple's past. We can only hope that justice will prevail and that those who have suffered at their hands will find a measure of closure. Anything that you wanted to say to Mark and or Rachel? One thing that stood out in my mind that Rachel had promised me, she said, I will always take care of Jasmine for you. Yeah. Said, said, I will. Said, I, you got my word on that. You sure did. Rachel promised she would take care of our child because she knew how concerned I was to, to leave 
Michigan and leave her behind when I knew that she was not comfortable there. We just wanted her to be okay. For now, Mark and Rachel remain behind bars at the Etowah County Jail awaiting trial. Sadly, with the arrest of Mark and Rachel and Jasmine's disappearance, the children were placed into foster care in Kentucky. The conditions the children were found living in were beyond abhorrent, and no child should ever have to endure such circumstances. Jasmine's family is determined to fight for custody of Jasmine's daughters, hoping to provide them with the love and stability that they deserve. However, this uphill battle is not only emotionally challenging, but also financially draining. The family has set up a GoFundMe campaign to help cover the legal expenses, and every contribution counts towards reuniting the girls with their rightful guardians. We will provide the link to the campaign in the episode details for anyone who wishes to support the family. Despite the years that have passed since Jasmine's disappearance, her family's resolve to find her remains unbroken. They wake up with the unwavering hope that this might be the day they receive the vital clue that will lead them to their daughter. Their resilience and perseverance in the face of adversity has been nothing short of inspiring to us. We've talked about that several times. I know. They have just been so strong through this and kept their faith through this. You know, a lot of people would shake their faith, but not these guys. Despite the odds stacked against them, they continue to hold on to the belief that Jasmine is out there somewhere, waiting to be found, and they will not rest until they bring her home. If you had anything that you wanted to say to Jasmine, what would that be? I would tell her that I love her and I want her to come home. Same with me, that we love her, that we miss her, and we, we just need her to come home. So we can take care of her. And we just pray that she's all right wherever she is. Contact us, please, if she can. I love her and I miss her, and I really, I think about her on the daily. And there's so many things that I'll listen to or see that, like, reminds me of her. At the time of her disappearance, Jasmine was 29 years old. She's African-American and approximately 5'6 and 145 to 155 pounds. Though based on our conversations with Jasmine's family and others, it's possible that she had experienced significant weight loss and could be even smaller than that. So we spoke to Sergeant Eric Phillips of the Gadsden Police Department, who is currently the lead investigator on Jasmine's case. Here's what he had to say about the status. Uh, Eric Phillips with the Gadsden Police Department. I've been uh, working the missing person case of Jasmine Host. And if anybody has any information uh, about her whereabouts, uh, they can call the police department's main line at 256-549-4500 and ask to speak to me, uh, Sergeant Phillips. Or they can use our Crime Stoppers line if they have information that um, they would rather remain anonymous. They can call Crime Stoppers at 334-215-7867. And I believe there is a reward offered uh, if we can uh, gain information about the whereabouts of uh, Jasmine Host. Jasmine was last seen in Gadsden, uh, Alabama, uh, up on Nakalula Drive, uh, around sep- the middle of September 2017. Uh, so if you have any information that could help us uh, trying to find Jasmine, reach out to those numbers uh, that I just read. That's wonderful. Thank you, Sergeant Phillips, for giving us that information. Um, right now, do you have a status on the case at all? So the status is it's still an open, you know, active case. We have followed... Uh, followed up on several leads and have come up short in the leads that we have, but this is an, an open uh, case and we will follow up on any lead that we get uh, pertaining to it. That's wonderful. We so appreciate that and I know the family does too. Yes, ma'am. Since Alabama Cold Case Advocacy's creation, we have dedicated innumerable hours to researching and networking in an effort to provide the largest platform we can to the cases we share. We shoulder all associated expenses with Alabama Cold Case Advocacy out of our own pocket, including the subscription fees for researching and production of the Unforgotten podcast to provide a cost-free avenue for the victims' families of those cases. 
We hope you will join in our efforts to raise awareness of Alabama's missing and murdered and support these families who have been forced to carry the immeasurable loss of their loved ones and the fight for answers. If you appreciate our mission and you are inspired to make a donation, your extra support will enable the ACCA to continue our research, share the cold cases, and help those families know that they are also unforgotten. Unforgotten is an Alabama cold case advocacy podcast recorded in conjunction with Riverside FM, hosted and distributed by Spotify for podcasters, available on your favorite podcast platform. Intro music for the show was created by Principles of Uncertainty, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Content and production is by Sellers and Swarmy, artwork by Sellers. Credits for music, sound clips, special mentions, and any source referenced in our podcast can be found in each episode's description. We hope you will join us on all the major social media sites and continue to raise awareness of our Alabama gold cases. Until next time, thank you for listening, and remember, justice may be delayed, but the victims and their families remain unforgotten.